we turn our attention now to God's Word and we find ourselves in Titus chapter 2 this morning. Titus chapter 2. Over the last few weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Titus. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to one of his ministry partners. And this morning, we arrive at what could be called the very heart of the letter. All that Paul has said to Titus up to this point, all that he will say after it, finds its focus in these verses 11 through 14 in chapter 2. Here we not only see the basis of the Christian's life with God, but how that life should be lived out and manifested before the church and the world. In other words, this passage gets us to the very crux, the very center of what it means to have right beliefs about God and our relationship to Him and how that should lead invariably to right behavior with God. The reality is, however, that doesn't always follow. Just because we believe the right things about God, that does not necessarily mean we're going to live the right way for Him. And therefore, we must be constantly coming back to this reality, this, this acknowledgement that uh, this is who God is, and therefore this is how we should be living in light of Him, particularly in our time this morning, we see the transforming effect of the grace of God should have on our life. Follow along with me as I read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of God this morning. Paul makes it clear that the life lived by Christians is to be lived by the grace of God. Everything in this passage flows from the beginning assertion that the grace of God has appeared question we ask is, what does the grace of God do? What should it produce in our life? What does a life lived by grace look like? And that's what Paul shows us in our passage this morning. He shows us specifically four ways that our life should be affected by the grace of God and how, therefore, that changed life, that affected life, should cause us to look manifestly different from anybody else in the culture around us. Four things that we see about grace this morning. First of all, we see this, that grace brings us to salvation. Grace brings us to salvation. Paul begins with, again, with this phrase, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, first of all, we have to ask, what is grace? Paul is making an assumption that we understand what that is. Grace is the opposite of merit. If you merit something, it means you've earned it. You've you've done something to deserve what you're getting, and grace is the opposite of that. Grace is not something you've earned. It's not something you deserve. It's not something you've paid for. And uh, based upon some experiences in high school, that leads me to say that, that grace often reminds me of grits at a southern restaurant. Here, if you go down the street to Cracker Barrel and you order breakfast, they will say, do you want the grits that come with that? And you can say, no, if you're from up north, which usually happens. I don't want those nasty things. I don't care if you put pepper or salt or butter or jelly or honey or whatever. I I don't want them. But the farther south you go, 
the less likely you're going to be asked whether or not you want grits. If you order food, grits just come with the meal. They don't ask. And the first time I was, I was in the, the, the South, and not just like, you know, Kentucky. I mean, the South. You, you order, uh, you know, bacon and eggs, and you get this big bowl of grits, and you're like, what is that? It looks like paste. It's like, no, that, that's grits. I, I didn't order grits. It doesn't matter. You get grits. You, you don't order them. You don't ask for them. You don't even pay for them. There's no difference in the price of the meal. You get grits. And, and that's what grace is. You, you, you don't need to ask for it from God. You don't pay for it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. He lavishes it upon you, and it is much better than grits. <laughs> I am in the north. It's getting to the heart of the reality of what God's grace is in our life. It is unmerited favor. It is His free gift of blessing and love. And Paul says grace has appeared. That is to say it has manifested itself. It has been visibly seen before our eyes. And Paul is thinking very specifically here of the coming of Jesus Christ, the whole of his incarnation. That means his infleshing from the manger to the cross to the resurrection and to his ascension at the beginning of the book of Acts where he goes back to heaven at the right hand of the Father. Why was this grace? After all, it's not as if God's grace had been absent before this. Read the Old Testament. In every book you see, it is dripping with God's grace. It is screaming to us, God is a gracious God. From the very beginning, He creates humanity in His image. He gives us everything we could possibly imagine, every joy and benefit. And we say, we want more. And we rebel. We deserve immediately to be an afterthought in the garden. But instead, God gives us grace. He allows us to live and even promises to repair the damage that we've done in our rebellion. You would think we would have learned. You would think that we would continue to love God the way we should, but we don't. You read book after book after book, all of humanity, not least of which God's own people, the recipients of his special grace, his covenantal love. And what do we do? We continue to rebel. And what does God continue to do? Show mercy and patience kindness and love he is gracious to us not giving us what we deserve but giving us what we don't deserve all of that is grace but that grace is a shadow of what we might call grace par excellence grace in its fullness that is revealed in the coming of christ it is a grace like no other that has been revealed in him for here we see the greatest lengths that god will go for his people for he himself has come to rescue them from their sins it is the coming of christ that we see the offering of the Son of God for the sins of humanity. We see people receiving not justice, but love from a holy God. And one of the central points that Paul is making here is that the salvation we have in Christ comes by grace. It's not something we've earned. God doesn't owe us anything. That's a popular misconception today. Well, I just don't see how loving God can send people to hell. Then you don't understand who God is. You don't understand what your sin is. We deserve hell. And God offers us something different. He offers us a way of escape. 
Salvation has not come to us because we've pledged to work hard or undergone some kind of initiation or said a specific prayer that has merited our relationship with God. We can't live out a, a golden rule or some religious philosophy to make us good enough to be acceptable by God. No, Paul says that, that salvation comes not from what we've done, but what from, from what God has already done through His Son. Salvation comes to us by grace when we believe that God will save us through His Son. In the next chapter, Paul explains what this means. He says, salvation comes by grace. He says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God is the one who sends His Spirit into our hearts, giving us new life, cleansing us from our sins, making us His people. What do we contribute? Nothing. Salvation comes from Him to us. And who does this come to? Paul says in in chapter 2, grace has appeared to all men. That is to say, there is no special class of people to which the gospel alone comes. There's nobody because of their ethnic background or because of the culture in which they've been raised or because of their intelligence or their wisdom or their goodness or spirituality that God says, I will save them. No, grace comes indiscriminately to all mankind because the gospel is preached to all mankind. That is the task we have as God's people, that the gospel is preached everywhere and is available freely to all No one stands unable to receive the grace of Christ as Savior. Why? Because salvation doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. He is the one who saves us. And this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. Grace. But what happens once that salvation comes to us? What happens when we put our faith in Christ? What happens when we have received grace? Paul says, secondly, grace not only brings us to salvation, but grace trains us for godliness. Grace trains us for godliness. In the past weeks, we've seen how the culture of Crete, the, the, the city to which Titus lived and was ministering, in which Paul is writing to, it was infamous for its immorality. If you missed that, just go back and read chapter 1 and, and you will see evidence of that. Paul says that the people of Crete themselves knew how bad they were, how sinful they were. And in contrast to that, Paul says the church at Crete should not look like the culture. They should look different from those around them. They should stand out from them. I heard a pastor this week giving a talk, and he said, he was explaining from, uh, from 1 Peter that the biblical vision for living the Christian life is that the church should be a countercultural representation of everything they are and everything that is around them in this way, they display what the surrounding people should look like under the authority of Christ. So when we think about the tri-cities from which our members come, when we gather together here along with every other church in the world, we should look like what it means for the tri-cities to be living under the lordship of Christ. So the ethnic diversity that is seen in the tri-cities should be seen within our congregation. The demographics should basically look the same, both in terms of ethnicity, in terms of of social background, in terms of your economic status. It should look the same. But what should look different is how we treat one another, how we love one another, how we interact with one another face-to-face, how we don't just rely on social media but actually show up at one another's homes and care for one another, 
how committed we are to the community of faith, not just for a couple hours one day a week, but as a lifestyle. How we desire to love and serve one another and help each other do the same. That is to say, when someone looks at a church in the Tri-Cities, they should see the Tri-Cities under the kingdom of Christ. That's what they should see. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He is saying that grace trains us for godliness. It should reveal the very character of God. And then there's a huge theme throughout this letter, isn't it? That we've seen already, we'll continue to see that Paul is calling the Christians of Crete to leave behind the immorality of their past and to remember the grace that has saved them and allow it to transform their lives. He reminds them that grace doesn't just justify them, it also sanctifies them. In other words, grace doesn't just allow us to be declared holy before God, it also makes us holy before God. So Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. To, To... foci of our training first we are to renounce ungodliness that is to say we are to learn how to say no to sin as god's people we do not have to live according to our passions we 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 don't just live however we want we are god's people therefore we seek to live in a godly way and say no to sin but more than that we say yes to godliness we pursue things like self-control upright and godly behavior As we have seen the character of God himself, so we are to imitate it. That's not easy for us, is it, as Christians? That's not easy for us. One Puritan pastor, Samuel Rutherford, once wrote to a young Christian explaining how easy it is to enjoy saving grace while not pursuing sanctifying grace. Here's what he says in his letter. He writes, sanctification, that is the process of becoming holy, And mortification of lust, mortification meaning putting to death improper desires. Sanctification and mortification of lust are the hardest part of Christianity. How many of us would have Christ divided into two halves that we might take the half of him only? We take his office, Jesus and salvation, but Lord is a cumbersome word. And to obey And work out our salvation and to perfect holiness is the cumbersome and stormy side of Christ. And one that we avoid and shift. He's right, isn't he? We love forgiveness, but we all too often ignore holiness. We all too often, in fact, use grace as an excuse not to pursue godliness. We say, well, we're forgiven and he'll forgive us again. I don't need to be legalistic and, 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 and do those kinds of things. When all the while, it's the exact opposite of the effect God's grace is supposed to have on us. Grace trains us, Paul says, to renounce ungodliness and to pursue godliness. How does grace do that? Remember the fountain from which the blessings of grace flow. It is Christ himself. Therefore, being trained in righteousness revolves around remembering his work to us from God, that work empowers us to resist sin and live holy lives. Now we could spend hours unpacking what that looks like. Let me give you a few practical ways that you can allow grace to operate in your life in such a way as to produce holiness. First of all, remember your freedom from sin. 
Remember your freedom from sin. If you are one of God's people, if you have looked to Christ in faith, you've been justified. You've been declared righteous by having the righteousness of Christ counted as your own. That means you're freed from sin's penalty. When you show up before God, the moment after you die or the moment after he returns, you need not fear condemnation. Guilt for your sin will not be an issue because it has already been absolved by Christ himself. You are freed from sin's penalty. But more than that, you have been freed from sin's power because of the spirit of Christ within us. We have been given new life. Being under the lordship of Christ means you are no longer under the lordship of sin like every other person in the world. As one of my favorite songwriters says, we are born as robots enslaved to the sinful desires of our hearts, following the course of this culture and even the devil himself. Where does he get that from? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But when Christ comes into our life, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He destroys those chains and throws them aside, and we have freedom now to say no to sin and to live lives of godliness. Remember, no slave who has been freed would ever run back to his master and shackle himself back up. Likewise, why would we run back to sin? We don't need to. We have been freed. Remember what Christ has done. Remember the grace of God and salvation. That is the basis for the pursuit of your holiness. Wake up every morning and say, I have been freed from the penalty and the power of sin by God's grace. I can live for him today. Secondly, believe God's promises of help. That's a great way to start off, but then you've got the drive-in to work that morning with your kids in the backseat you're dropping off at school. And suddenly, you're wondering, I don't don't know that I can actually survive this, right? Particularly if you have more than one kid, and and they're grumpy, and they don't like each other that morning because they don't have enough sleep. Remember, God has not left us alone in the fight. Remember that he is for us. Remember that he is on our side. He is our shield and our refuge. Go to his word or mentally call up what you've read before and and consider his promises for help. Remember, he has not left you to fight by yourself. He said, I will be there with you. I will care for you. I will protect you. I will come to your aid in times of trouble. Read those things and believe them. Finally this, surround yourself with godly people. Surround yourself with godly people. J.C. Ryle says, be often among the godly. They are the salt of the earth and they will season you. That is, they will be grace in your life. A loving encouragement from, or rather, your growth. You will benefit from their counsel, their prayers, their love, their fellowship. God's people will be the means by which God's grace comes into your life. His care, his comfort, his correction will come to you through them. Therefore, be with them. Above all, remember that grace saves us and grace sanctifies us. You are not left alone to pursue godliness. God is there to give you strength and direction and the encouragement you need. Part of the way he does this is the third thing we see, and that is this. Grace focuses us on the future. Grace focuses us on the future. In our training for godliness, Paul describes a war. A spiritual war that is waged in the human heart. It's a daily war as we get out of bed and immediately begin feeling as God's people the pull and the push of God's spirit against the sinful nature of our own hearts. 
the, the reality is how could there be anything other than spiritual war when, when people saved out of the world who still live in the world are seeking to pursue godliness? Spiritual forces are in conflict there. And oh, how easy it is to become discouraged and to give up the fight. Oh, how easy it is, in fact, to, to flee one temptation by indulging in the, in, in the sin of something else, believing that will be our way of escape. How do we stay encouraged in the midst of all this? How do we stop to stop from throwing in the towel? Not just in big ways like giving up the faith, but even in the small decisions we face each and every day. How do we get out of bed and make it to church on Sunday morning? How do we forgive our spouse for the hurtful thing that they said before the angry word comes out of our mouth in response? How do we keep our eyes and our hearts from lingering over things they shouldn't be set on? How do we keep from going insane because we're trying to balance disciplining and instructing our kids while also forgiving them and remembering that they're sinners just like us, even though in one day they sin again and again and again and again and again and again. How do we, how do we forgive that, that thoughtless neighbor who, who does whatever they do that so totally inconveniences you and the plans that you had for your yard or your driveway or the street or whatever, realizing they, they had no idea that they were inconveniencing you? It's not just like, well, they're going to renounce the faith and leave. There is nitty-gritty detail, moment-by-moment, daily temptations that we have for sin. How do we stay encouraged when we are slammed again and again by those things? The pursuit of holiness is a struggle. Sometimes it is huge things. Sometimes it's hard things like joblessness and cancer. Sometimes we see friends struggling with difficult things to the point that they feel like there's no hope. Things are never going to get better. How do we deal with those painful things? How do we assure them, oh, we get better? We don't know it's going to get better. They may die. The person they love may, may die. They may never find a job for the next 10 years. You're not God. You don't know the future. Therefore, what do you say to them? What do you say to your own soul to encourage you in the midst of those things? We say the one thing that we know is certain. It will all come to an end. And for God's people, it's a very good it is a glorious ending. The fight is worth it because one day the war will be over. And knowing that keeps us encouraged in our pursuit of countercultural Christ-centered godliness. Paul says, having experienced God's saving grace, sanctifying grace, we continue to grow in godliness waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We may live in a present evil age, but a righteous king is coming. That is the blessed hope we have an assurance of, that Christ himself will appear and bring the ultimate remedy for the world's problems. He will bring about justice and righteousness for those that have escaped in this life. He will bring an end for, to sin, even the sin in our own hearts, forever. He will resolve the tension we feel as God's people in a sinful world and bring about the consummation of the promise of our eternal life with him. That is what his coming means, and how will he do all that? How can we be confident that he will do that when, when the going is tough and life begins throwing sucker punches and you find yourself face down in the dirt of despair? How can the future hope help you? How can we be assured that God is actually going to do this, that, that Jesus will actually return and be able to do all the things that he said that he, did, he will do? Notice how Paul describes him here. He is our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. 
in all the Bible, this is one of the strongest, most direct statements of the deity of Christ that we have. Some will say that Paul's not talking about Jesus here. He's talking about God the Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Two persons. The problem is, grammatically, that doesn't hold up. Back in 1718, one of the men who fought alongside William Wilberforce to abolish slavery in England, Granville Sharp, he published a study on the definite article in the Greek New Testament. You know what the definite article is? The. The word the. How would you like to do a study on the word the throughout a book? That's a detail guy. Or it's a guy who really loves God's word. And what he found was in the specific construction that we find in verses like this, where you have the noun and noun, it always refers to the same thing. It always refers to the same In fact, it's called the Granville Sharp Rule. You learn it in Greek your first year. He is showing us that it cannot be referring to two people. Paul is identifying Christ as our Savior and our God. And I think he does that here, not just abstractly. I should say that Christ is God, and so I'll put it in here. No, no, no. I I think it comes in the context because it is intensifying the reality of the hope to which he is pointing. The same God and Savior who stepped out of eternity, taking on humanity, giving himself for us, revealing his glory through suffering, was raised back and is coming again. And he is coming not with veiled glory, but with unimaginable glory, for he is God. He is coming with a majestic, eternal, unyielding glory that will match the the unimaginable power by which he will subject openly and obviously all things to his sovereign will. He will destroy sin forever. And even those who have hated him and renounced him in this life will have to bow the knee and say, Jesus is Lord. How much more glorious for those who have loved him in this life. Now he is our Lord. He is our God. He is our Savior. And the glory with which he emanates over all things is the glory that will shine out of us as well. Because we will fully and finally be remade in his image. A vision of that kind of future will buttress us against anything in this life. In fact, Paul would say earlier, when he wrote to the Romans, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is not a man who's abstracted from suffering. He's not a man who had an easy life. And yet he says, when I think about the glory that will be revealed in us through Christ, our God and Savior, the sufferings of this life just don't even compare. They're worth it. They're worth it. They're worth it. It's for this reason that Jim Elliott, the famous missionary martyr, when he was only 20 years old, wrote to his younger sister of 15 with these words, Fix your eyes on the rising morning star. Like every day, live every day as if the Son of Man were at the door. And give your thinking to the fleeting moment. Walk as if the next step would carry you across the threshold of heaven. Grace brings us to salvation. Grace trains us for godliness. Grace forces us, or rather focuses us on the future. And finally, grace prepares us for ministry. Grace prepares us for ministry. In verse 14, Paul picks up on his description of Christ as God and Savior and explains more about the salvation he has given to us and what that salvation should produce within us. He says that Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Being redeemed evokes the imagery of the slave market. Last week we explained how slavery of the first 
century was very different from slavery in our own context, in our own country. And another, another distinction that we did not mention last week, but we should mention here, is its prevalence. The New Testament, in New Testament times, the Roman Empire had approximately 20 million slaves. That's a quarter of the population of the, of the entire empire. The buying and selling of slaves was a major business for the Romans. And if a person wanted to free a loved one or a child or, or a parent, he would have to buy them out of slavery. They had to pay the ransom price to redeem them for the cost of the person's freedom. And Paul is picking up on that imagery when he says, Christ redeemed us. Namely, he redeemed us from lawlessness. That is, he redeemed us from a life of sin and rebellion against God. Just as the Bible was clear, we said earlier that everyone is enslaved to sin, so also here Christ frees those who are his people. Though sin was our master, though sin dominated us, now we are free. Why? Because he paid the cost of our ransom. He redeemed us with the price of his own life. And why did he do this? To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Just as God called Israel out of slavery in Egypt and cleansed them and sanctified them to be his people, so now in the new covenant, God redeems and purifies people from everywhere, from every tribe, from every language, from every nation in this world to be his people, to be his treasured possession. And why does he do that? Why does he save us in this way? What does God desire us and enable us to do as his people? I think it was Luther who said that we are saved by grace alone, but grace is never alone. What he meant was this. Though we are saved by God's grace and not anything that we do, what we do matters having been saved by grace. Good works do not make us right with God, but good works reflect our rightness with God. Where did he get that from? Paul. Verse 14. Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Loved ones, God has not saved us to sit in church. God has not saved us to be a social club. He has not saved us to be a sports team or a support group. He has saved us for ministry. He has saved us for service. He has saved us to make disciples and to serve those around us by meeting, for, meeting their needs and caring for them. And we may not like the thought of that. We may feel like it's better when we have our needs met. It's better when I can, when I can just go in and kind of punch my, my spiritual time clock and say, I, I went to church, I did my duty, I did what God wanted, I'm, I'm a religious person and that's enough. And God is saying, that's not what I created you for. That's not why I called you. That's not why I saved you and brought you into the fellowship of myself with my people. I saved you that you might be an agent of good works in this life. And the reality is we will only truly know joy and happiness if we are living for the purpose for which we were created. Just a few weeks ago I heard somebody say that, you know, a screwdriver works really well when it's a screwdriver. But it doesn't work very well when you try and use it as a hammer. It winds up slipping off the edge of the nail and banging your thumb. If it's a wooden handle, it winds up cracking and falling apart. And you, you get really disgusted with the screwdriver and you want, you want to throw it away. It doesn't, it doesn't work well. You're not happy. But it's not designed to be a hammer. It's designed to be a screwdriver. 
And when you use it as a screwdriver, you're going to be very happy with it. How much more our lives? We were created as God's people for service, for ministry, for building up the body of Christ and for being light and salt to the world around us. When we fail to do that, why would we ever expect to know true and lasting joy in this life? We're not fulfilling the purpose for which we have been created. And so as one person has said, the the good life is the life laid down. The, The life laid down before God in an act of worship to him saying, here is my life. I don't live for myself anymore. I don't live for my selfish, ungodly desires. I live for you. I live for your will in service to you. Several years ago when El Nino's rain hammered down on Southern California, one family in particular experienced the dangers, even the horrors of mudslides firsthand. While the family was still in their home, a wave of mud tore into the house, literally splitting it in two, sweeping a sleeping baby out into the storm. Immediately the parents were searching throughout the darkness for their child. They spent an agonizing night searching through the entire mud-bathed neighborhood, only to find themselves empty-handed. Yet when morning came, there was a volunteer, himself completely covered in mud, coming with a mud-covered bundle in his arms, a filthy but alive baby. Despite the grimy, soiled appearance, that mother grabbed the child in her arms, seemingly never to let go again, and almost immediately began wiping wiping and washing the caked-on-earth off her little girl. So much of that story points us to the truths of the grace of God. Through Christ, our divine rescuer, who came to this earth covering himself in the mud of humanity and the world, God has redeemed us to himself. And despite the filth of our own sin, he has brought us to himself and embraced us with his love and has begun cleaning us off not just some external things, but he's began cleaning us off from the inside out, transforming the heart to resemble his own, wiping away the stain of sin. We didn't deserve this. We did not earn this. It has come by grace. It is the free gift of his love. When believed by faith, that should so move us to love him and to give ourselves to him in response. We should give ourselves to Him by obeying Him and serving Him and worshiping Him and loving Him. Not only as the one who made us, but the one who saved us. That is a life lived by grace. Father, that is the kind of life that we pray that we would have and we would exhibit as well. A life lived by grace, delighting in the salvation that You have given to us, joyfully pursuing godliness, Remembering all the while with confidence the the coming fulfillment of all your promises in Christ. Serving and ministering to one another in the world in the meantime. God, may, may your word, which has provided this vision of the Christian life, a life lived by grace, God, may that, may your spirit impress our own hearts and even change the way that we think about our life. That we might enjoy and delight in your grace more and more each day. Father, this is our prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name.